now, the middle of the week and plenty to hear from the day on Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. If you're getting up in the morning and wondering, do I heat my home or do I feed myself because of this financial burden that's been left on carers, it's going to create a bigger problem. My sister fell into a glass. As she was very shy, the liquid gave her the confidence to navigate life without any anxiety. As it turned out, in the BAFTAs, um, Paul was able to have plus plus two. Right. So it was Daddy and or yeah. Paul and myself. Um, at the Oscars, it'll be plus one. May fame. Tussa. And we'll start with Liveline. And Joe's first caller was Angela. And Angela began a national conversation about alcohol addiction when she spoke about her recently deceased sister, Martina Parker, who died at the age of 50. Um, I think she was just one of those unlucky people who started drinking alcohol and very quickly became addicted to it. Um, Very addicted. There was no Mm. going back with her. Uh, there was no catalyst for it. We just realised that she was drinking more than she normally would have. Would have um, and she was living in England at the time. Okay. Um, my mother went over to see her and realised that the situation was a bit worse than we expected. And my mother had brought her to the GP at that time in London and he he just put her on a low alcohol treatment. Um, so my mother decided to bring her back to Ireland okay. to see if we could get her treatment. And that was five years ago, and I suppose that's where our story started. And at that stage, Martina was what forty-five years of age. Do do you do, do, do the family recall when and indeed if why? Because it is an addiction, it is an illness, it is a disease. Um, when the, when the drinking did get out of control, Angela? Um, we're not too sure. I know she was building a new house with her partner and her partner would have been very supportive. But she used to ring us in the night time and it was sort of, she'd have a, have a glass of wine when she was speaking to us, which wouldn't have been like her at all. Mm-hmm. And I think it just grew from there. And she was a very quiet and shy person And I feel that the alcohol gave her a bit of confidence and um, she was able to deal with things, maybe the pressure of the building the house and that sort of thing. She was able to deal with it better with alcohol and it just grew from there. And when your family brought her back to Ireland five years ago, Mm -hmm. um, was was Martina open to, to help? No, because she didn't recognise that she had a problem at all. We were yeah. just making a big issue out of it. But I suppose at that time, it was, it was actually worse than we realised. Um, so we were starting from, a, as we thought, the beginning. But obviously, she was further on in her addiction than we realised. Yeah. Um, so she wasn't really open to getting any help at that time or at any mm-hmm. time over the five years. And you decided as a family to, to say this at the funeral on February, at the beginning of February, she died on the 4th of February. Yeah, yeah, well, we just 
thought a few people had said, you know, nobody needs to know how yeah, or why yeah. he died. And we, we kind of felt, no, people need to know. And especially for research purposes down the line that, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody that young died from an addiction, it should be highlighted and they should be able to research why and how. So to be open, and we are a very open family, yeah. I decided, it just came to me the night before the funeral, I discussed it with the family the next mm-hmm. morning. And I, up to the time I said it, I didn't know whether I was going to or not, but I did. And I think uh, everybody was happy that I did it. And did did you write it down beforehand, Angela? I wrote it down uh, just a little bit, but it was in my head. It was just in my head and it came out. It was what I felt as her struggle, our struggle, and how difficult it is Mm -hmm. for the families involved with people uh, who are dealing with addiction, as as well as the person themselves and neighbours and friends who who were very helpful to her and us. Yeah. And Angela read some of her tribute to Martina. Um, my sister fell into a glass. As she was very shy, the liquid gave her the confidence to navigate life without any anxiety. She felt really content and safe in there. After a while, she started to feel sick and cold. As a family, we reached into the glass and one by one, we tried to pull her out. But she kept slipping back to the bottom. We engaged the help of the medical profession who with us tried with all our might to help her out. But she was just too tired. She said not to worry. She felt safe and happy in the glass. And finally, she curled up and fell into a forever peaceful sleep. That's it. <laughs> no one chooses to be an addict. Um, no. And and as you say, one by one, we reached in to the glass, which is the analogy, and we tried to pull her out. Did did anyone? Do you feel looking back? Did anyone get close? Oh. No. No. Um, I feel we all tried our hardest. Uh, my brothers were very good. Um, we'd all have very close relationship with each other, and we would have all tried different tacts over the years, um, but nothing reached her. Um, her children, maybe at the start, mm. we would have said to her, you know, we'll have to inform them of what's going on because they live in London, yeah. and she was she didn't want that at all. But even in the last year, that didn't matter. You know, it was nothing. The addiction was number one, and that was it. You know, the addiction. And it was. Yeah. And did you say you you obviously said to the children, or said to the children, this is what we want to say. We don't want to hide anything at the funeral. Oh, absolutely. We would have said it yeah, beforehand, yeah. and they would have known. And they know, and I would have spoken to them yesterday about coming onto the show, and they felt strongly as well that it needed to be highlighted that you know addiction addiction is a powerful illness, yeah. you know, and she was she just not could not get out of it, and we would have had open discussion with discussions with her about dying, and she would just say to us, well, I'm I know I'm going to die, so you know I won't know about it if it happens, you know. 
and we would have had discussions about the impact she she was having on us as a family. The worry, um, the constant going to the, I I don't know how many detoxes she had in hospital, overnight visits, there for weeks on end, um, just constant in and out of the hospital. You know, in the last three months of her life, she would have been in for 10 days, maybe out for three, in for 10, out for three. And even all that was... um, impacted heavily on the family as a whole. Well, that's Angela. Then Mary called Joe about the death of her daughter, Siobhan, from alcohol addiction-related illness. Uh, she died of cirrhosis of the liver. She was just 42. Oh, and like that other lady, she was five years diagnosed of cirrhosis of the liver. And it was so hard. And she never, she fought and fought and fought. But we could never get her to get off the drink. You know? Yeah. It was so hard. It was really, really hard. And it's just it's just watching someone die with cirrhosis of the liver that mm-hmm. is the pain that they were in at the time. You know, but the hospital was very good to her now. I must say they were really good. But like that other lady, we spent an awful lot of time in and out of the hospital constantly, in and mm-hmm. out of the hospital with her. And no matter what we ever did, she could just never give it up. Never. And even when she was told five years. Well, oh, yeah, she wouldn't know. She And like that other lady, she got to a stage, Siobhan got to a stage, she just wanted to go. She just wanted to go. She didn't want any intervention or anything when it came to the time that she was going. She had asked for no intervention. So the day okay. we were told that, that she was going to go, I think... Probably got to two. She was probably knew and was happy in herself, but she was in a lot of pain. And to use the the phrase that Martina felt uh, it had beaten her. No, we couldn't. She just couldn't get. We couldn't win with her. We couldn't yeah. win with her. You know, no matter what, we couldn't, oh, we couldn't win with her. There was no. She could see no other way out of it. Yeah. Um, And was she she ever close to treatment? Oh, she was, yeah. We used to bring her to meetings, everything. Okay. Lots of meetings. Lots of meetings we brought her to. You know, absolutely lots of meetings we brought her to. And she would never. We'd bring her, she'd go, and then we'd make other appointments for her and she wouldn't go then. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know, she just wasn't in her. It wasn't, I think, the addiction. I think if people have an addictive personality yeah. that they just can't. When they get addicted to something, that's what they want. And I think that's the big thing with alcohol. If they get addicted to it, that's it. That's all they want. And they don't see any other side out of it. And was she ever, was Siobhan is her name, I see. God rest yeah. her. Um, uh, Mary, was Siobhan ever close to a residential treatment? No, 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 yeah. no. She well, just wouldn't. Yeah, one she of the just f- wouldn't go into it. That's one of the first things they look for in residential treatment. Yeah. Is, is a commitment yeah. and a willingness to get well. Yeah, you see, but she had to have that willingness. Yeah. She didn't. Siobhan didn't. She My didn't goodness. have that. So that we could never get to that step because she didn't have it in her to do yeah. it. She'd rather she'd come out of the hospital after being in the hospital maybe for two weeks. Yeah. 
and the first thing she'd, she'd get is a bottle. You know, we go down, we used to go down to her apartment and the empty bottle she'd find, she'd find them in the yeah. wardrobe, everywhere. You know. And when yourself and your family talk about it, Mary, talk about Siobhan, what, what, like Angela was saying that uh, there Martina was always extraordinarily shy, anxious in social situations. Um, she was a lone drinker. She she didn't drink so Yeah, Siobhan was a lone drinker too. Yeah. But she was great spirit. Siobhan had great yeah. spirit in her. Okay. She really had. She was a lovely person. So many people were marked on her. You know, when she passed yeah. away and you'd be talking to people and were marked on how such a lovely person she was. But she just got... That addiction just got into her and she just we just couldn't get it out. And did anyone, as far as you, you can look back on it now, Mary, and it's even an awful phrase to use on such a young woman looking back on her life, um, did anyone ever get any medic, any treatment centre, any person, any book, any, any, anything ever get close to her saying... No. Getting the insight. She, she went to AA and things like that and she went to council, but she just never... She just never had it in her. And we tried so much. She just never had it in her to give it up. Siobhan there on the live line. And if these stories have affected you, you can find support from rte.ie slash helplines. And on the Ray Darcy show, Dervla Meskel, mother of Oscar nominee Paul Meskel, popped into studio. How are you doing, Dervla? I'm doing really well. I can't believe I'm here <laughs> at your table. Yeah, this is our it's, kitchen table. Yes. Come in, sit down. Come in, I am. You got Thank a cup you. of tea, didn't you? I did. I'm yeah. minty. Yeah, great, lovely, lovely. lovely. Great, you. great that you're here. Thank you. Because um, we spoke on the phone. We did. Uh, um, a lovely and, call. And again, you're reacting to something that only happened yesterday. I know another. I know uh, another that, nomination. That sounds like even saying that. That's like oh, <laughs> yes, no, wonderful, wonderful. It was such an amazing show. Uh, Streetcar is just one of those shows and um, it's a big one you know the Olivier is just yes you know to be in that mix pretty pretty spectacular yeah. because you're getting up and you're doing it every night every night and it's live and you know Judy Dench talks about it I saw her when she was being interviewed by uh, by um, Louis Thoreau and she said you know when you go out to a live audience Monday night is different to Tuesday is different to Friday and you feed off the audience and yourself and your energies so um, yeah that's a that's a big thing yeah big thing. I, I, to be in the moment then oh always like, yes you know you have to be in and he's very routined so like the routine of theatre is very Suits him. yes right. you know because yes. it's different to film now I know nothing about film but theatre is you know you get up he you know goes to the same place to get his his coffee or whatever breakfast yes. and yes, his coffee yeah. and then he goes to the gym and then he arrives at the theatre and meets the same people and the routine is and it's all about routine there's a kind of like nearly a superstition you know they do a little bit of boxing and all of that stuff on stage and things like that so it's that's all fascinating yeah I, it's very interesting because I've, I've spoken to a few actors over here and I've asked them about that like what's yeah. your routine yes. now, some of them will immediately go this 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 yes. and others don't have no, a, and, no and I think yeah. it, it is all depends on yeah. the ensemble what it's required and this is a very ensemble piece you know it's um, I mean obviously all theatre I think is that but it's very raw there's no like the cup that's presented is put on by the other actors uh-huh. do you know there's yes. no it's not like you're looking at a kitchen or you're looking at an apartment it is very much in your 
Okay. It's in the vision of Rebecca to see it, for okay. us all to see it. So, so that's uh, Paul Meskel nominated for an Olivia Award, uh, yeah. nominated from a BAFTA, nominated for an Oscar. Uh, and we were just looking at our files, yeah. uh, uh, Meskel, and it's nearly to the day Three years since your son sat there. I know. You're just saying. How things have changed. That is like the world has changed. Yes. So, you know, I mean, I was I was in work and we were getting ready for what was coming and what we were being told about in COVID. And I had to pick him up on O'Connell Bridge. I picked up Dunica from his student accommodation with a little bag, thinking it was going to be two weeks of come home. And we drove Paul to the airport and he was going to do... The promos for normal people. Okay. So, uh, literally, uh, Lieutenant finished on a two o'clock show. Everything closed down. He got on an airplane and he was gone. And he was literally gone then for, like, because COVID obviously lasted a lot longer than we thought. And Ray asked Dervla about Paul's casting as Connell in Normal People. And it, it dawned on him that Normal People was going to change his life. And yeah. Did we have that chat with you? Yeah, we did. We so are my I wild my back garden. So my back garden is quite wild and I have a kind of a swingy thing in the back garden and it was beautiful weather if you remember during covid mm. and I was sitting I had just finished work. I was sitting at home and he was running somewhere along the marshes because you could hear the birds and I said, "Where are you?" and he said he's running. And he said, "It's happening tomorrow." And I said, "Yep." And it was going to be downloaded, you know, it was on BBC streaming or whatever. So it was going to be going out into the world. And he was jogging and he said, my life's going to change. It'll either change for the good or the bad, because how are people going to perceive it is up to them. And I said, yeah. And he said, it's going to be a crazy ride. And I said, I think it'll be a crazy ride. But I said, you know, you had Lenny and you had Hetty, these amazing directors and you made the best friends of your life, which he has. Daisy. Which, and, oh, yeah. Daisy and Fionn and India. And, I mean, like, and they're still his friends. So it's, you know, sometimes you hear, you know, we're like a family and everybody's together. And, and they move on. They, and they move on. <laughs> to and, the next and, you know, family, exactly, yes. to yeah, the yeah. next one, which is great. Yeah. But yeah. these are, you know, really his people. And like all through Christmas when he was doing this, they all happened to be on breaks and home. So he was really, he had them around him, which mm. was wonderful. So, so he knew that was, that he knew there was something special I about think it normal was, people? I think or? they knew they had created that there was something very special about, well, obviously the book, um, mm. you know, Sally had written this amazing book that he got me to read. And I remember reading, you know, I remember lying on the sofa and he was talking to me. He says, and have you read it? And I said, I have. I said, I don't know if I really like you. You didn't <laughs> bring her to the Debs. And I was like, oh, can you not, you know, I kind of, can you not just play a Prince Charming? Just be nice and whatever. Yeah. So uh, he, he, you know, the book in itself was pretty spectacular. So when you have Lenny and Hetty yes. as directors, you're not going to go far wrong. And then you have these actors all around you. And Dervla's going to the Oscars. The, you're sort of in the middle of award season. Look at you. I know. <laughs> woo, woo. I know. Woo. <laughs> so, Meeting lovely people. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're blushing there. I am why, slightly because it's all quite... Un- I mean, look where I am right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, no. I mean, it's re- very special. I mean, I feel um, it's been one of these most amazing... Like life has been has thrown me a swerve ball, and uh, and and in turn ter- swerved my children's lives a little mm. bit, and you then sit there and you have these magic things happening, like being going to London and going into Gucci, right? Like Gucci, Dervla, 
So, 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 I mean, so you, they know that Paul is nominated for a BAFTA. They yes. know he's, he's going to be photographed on yes. the red carpet. Yes. All of those things. Yes. So they've done this before. Oh, absolutely. But, but I mean, these are, these are the, these are the people that right. do this. Yes. Okay. Yes. And they do it for the whole family? Well, basically, um, as it turned out in the BAFTAs, um, Paul was able to have plus, plus two. Right. So it was Daddy and or yeah. Paul and myself. Um, at the Oscars, it'll be plus one. May fame. Tussa. Uh, Tussa. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so they very kindly invited, you know, said they'd like to offer us their clothes to wear. How was Paul Senior with that? <laughs> it was so much fun. It was like everybody knows the pretty woman scene. And it, it was 10 times bigger than that. There was velvet curtains and they were so kind. Like there was seamstresses and um, you know, you're putting on these amazing clothes and like they're all in racks and you're standing there in this amazing place and lovely people and yeah. you're just trying, like, can I try these on? And you're putting them on and there's people putting on your shoes and like, it's really yeah. crazy, different world. wonderful, yes. very different world. Now, very, was, very grateful, very grateful and felt very, very welcome. And now, not a little Just on a, on a serious note, because Paul is part of that world now. Oh, this is his world. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. And, you were and just we're, visiting. We're, you were visiting. Sorry. Yes. And, and that's the other thing, that you're very aware that this is business. Like, yes. there, you know, you do the film or the, the play or whatever it is, and then there's all this publicity um, and you've got to sort of you just follow you just follow th- his lead and he has an amazing team yeah. who know how to navigate this craziness which it is it's completely it, crazy and Dervla spoke about her cancer diagnosis so basically um i had my first so i had my first event with paul i'd never been at an event with paul um i think possibly out of protection to us because he knew how crazy the world is when you're on you know where lights are flashing and everything so I got this great honour of going to the men's Wimbledon final. And um, so we went to the Wimbledon final and that was arriving in at half two. I came home and I had a scan on after work on the Tuesday. On the Thursday, they had found um, lesions or tumours. So the pain had been in my right shoulder. And the following Sunday, so literally walked into Centre Court and walked into the oncology unit in Beacon the following Sunday. So What year was that? That was last year. So just last July. So sorry, just last July. So it was literally, um, Nell had gifted me Coldplay tickets to Paris and I was to go with her and I had to try and figure out her song had just been released graduating and didn't want to overshadow that and kind of concentrate and Dunnock had just moved to New York four days previously so it was all like this like you couldn't write it mm. and you know you're talking into your phone to the three of them um, it's good cancer and of course they're going what like, good cancer what's good cancer well like I sort of and at that point we didn't know what kind of cancer it was but we knew we'd caught it early or believed it had and I have a wonderful team and I did my 17 weeks of chemo then I had stem cell. So I have multiple myeloma. Right. So I have, so I'm very lucky I'm going to be able to get, so I had my stem cells harvested, uh, which basically means you're going to go on a dialysis. And so I think the day I got the port in was kind of in James's, I, cancer was real. You know, I mean, you're surrounded and you're very aware, but 
I think you don't realize. I, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't realize. I suppose my, I was staying positive and I was, you know, but that was a very real moment of getting the port in. Get, so I'd be able to have the dialysis going on. Mm-hmm. Um, did the dialysis. And then, so the next phase, which was supposed to have happened, I so that's why I had shaved my head the day the Oscar nomination came out because I was supposed to go in on the following Monday, which is about three and a half to a month of isolation. So they kind of hit you with nuclear chemo and then they reintroduce your stem cells back and it's a bit like rebooting your like your phone. You know, the way okay, factory so, so, settings. So they, 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 they zap you to get rid of the bad guys. Exactly. And they've taken some of your good guys out and they put them back in. And then they put them back in. Right. And then I kind of, you kind of go into this dip and it's that rise where, like the rebooting of your, okay. your phone, back to factory settings. So I'll have... I will be I will be I'll be kind of like super duper hopefully Um, it's it's not a curable cancer it is a seriously researched cancer and um, it's a it's kind of like a disease rather you know what I mean you can live I can live with it and I will take whatever medicines they I take and I will do my holistic parts of my life and and how do you feel about it now um, it's very interesting because it's I mean, this is obviously Cancer Month, as we know, because, you know, the 24th is going to be the Irish Cancer Society's big day. And um, I'm all of us know somebody with cancer and suddenly I'm the person with cancer. Dervla Meskel from The Ray Darcy Show. And on Morning Ireland, three years on from our first case of COVID and the aftermath of the isolation some people are still experiencing. Hello again, world. Three years to the day since the first case of COVID-19 was confirmed here, the Chief Medical Officer has urged older people to reconnect with other people, saying we cannot allow COVID to steal more years from us. Within weeks of that first case, schools were closed, people were ordered to largely stay at home and stay away from other people as much as possible to prevent the spread of the virus and hospitals being overwhelmed. Restrictions on the way we live continued until January of last year. In an open letter to older people in Ireland today, as part of a multimedia campaign entitled Hello Again World, Professor Breda Smith addresses the isolation and loneliness experienced by older people during the pandemic and says, if you haven't yet returned to doing the things that you love, I'm encouraging you to do so now. It comes as the health service executive says that more than a quarter of COVID deaths here were in nursing homes and the government says it plans to establish an inquiry into the state's handling of the pandemic by the middle of the year. Dr Roland Collins is a consultant geriatrician and the HSE's national clinical lead in stroke. Dr Collins, good morning. Thanks for taking our call today. Good morning. Three years and it sometimes feels a lot longer than that. You've read the Chief Medical Officer's letter. Are there many people who are still isolated by the pandemic, in your view? Well, obviously, if the Chief Medical Officer has written a letter and there's a campaign planned, I'd imagine there is evidence behind it to suggest that many older people are not resuming their normal activities. That being said, that hasn't been my experience initially. I think most people have got back to life and were eager to get back to life. Uh, from interacting with older people in clinical settings. It should be remembered, however, that loneliness and, for example, getting back to life is not just an age particularly related issue. Um, During the pandemic, the evidence would have shown us that, for example, feelings of well-being and feelings of depression and feelings of loneliness were actually greater amongst younger groups than they were amongst older groups. 
That being said, however, there are some issues, obviously, that make it more difficult for older people to re-engage if they have dropped activities uh, because of mobility issues, because of maybe IT connection issues, etc., etc. But I think this conversation needs to broaden out as well into the topic of loneliness in general and how society reconnects. There are strong health benefits for both older and younger people by engaging with one another uh, intergenerationally. And I think that is a challenge for our society. Over 8,500 COVID deaths here, over 2,300 in nursing homes, according to figures provided to Angel Leader Patrick Tobin by the HSC. Are you surprised by the scale of nursing home deaths? Um, I'm not really, uh, to be honest with you. I think many of our older people who are in nursing homes or some of our more com- uh, complex, uh, frailer um, medical conditions, etc., associated with it. And so the mortality would have been perhaps expected uh, to be highest within that age group. Uh, that being said as well, there were factors around our nursing homes and the governance and medical management of our nursing homes about the state's, I suppose, preparedness uh, to protect people in those settings um, and about our model of care in nursing homes in general that left a lot to be desired for. I would stress that from a clinical point of view, from our perspective, I don't think we need an inquiry into how nursing homes were handled. I think we've done that already. An expert panel was set up in 2021 to look at the issue of COVID in nursing homes and the very high mortality and indeed the problems that we readily identified uh, through research and through experience early on. And that panel made its recommendations and rather than an inquiry, I'd be asking really that we focus down and actually look at those recommendations that were made and how far are we along the road to implementing them. Are you saying you feel there, there is no need for a further inquiry? Well, with regard to nursing homes in particular, I think you know, an expert panel was put together. It made yes. very strong recommendations that identified the problems. Now, that being said, there was also the real life lived experience of people who had loved ones in nursing homes. And I think that does need to be given a voice, I think. People's experiences need to be heard. And in that regard, there needs to be a mechanism to learn those very valuable and hurtful experiences that people had. Um, But I think myself, looking at what needs to be done in the management, I think the expert panel that was set up in 2021 was very clear and made very good and far-reaching uh, recommendations and I think we should be concentrating on implementing those now. Dr Roland Collins from Morning Ireland. And on today with Claire Byrne in the morning, the Murdoch murders, the case that's gripping America and beyond with a Netflix documentary looking at the family at the centre of this southern Gothic. In February of 2019, Paul Murdoch, the second son in a family of prosecutors and trial lawyers, crashed the family boat into a bridge on the Beaufort River in South Carolina and his friend's girlfriend, 19-year-old Mallory Beach, was killed. Now, two years later, in June of 2021, Paul Murdoch and his mother Maggie were shot dead on their own family's property. Alex Murdoch, who's Paul's father and Maggie's husband, has now been charged with their murder and he's also accused of fraud and embezzlement. Marion McKeown is US correspondent with the Business Post and joins me now. Good morning, Marion. Good morning, Claire. This is completely fascinating and I was watching part of the trial last night where the accused brother was talking about cleaning up the murder scene. It's extraordinary. It's hard to know where to begin. But maybe just tell us a little bit about this family because they were a force to be reckoned with in their area for a hundred years. 
That's right. And they were a really, um, as said, they were a very famous legal family. His um, Alex Murdoch's father and his grandfather and great grandfather were all really powerful lawyers and prosecutors in what's called the Low County, which is an area in South Carolina, which is sort of straight out of a Gothic Southern you know, novel. Um, a lot of very poor people there. Um, most of the it, the money that Alex Murdoch made what came from personal injury cases due to a lot of claims and it's coming from mining and from uh, wood the the wood uh, processing industries as well. But but in in terms of Alex Murdoch's family, just to give an idea of how well respected they were before the trial. Portraits had to be taken down in the courthouse of his great-grandfather and his grandfather because they were, as you say, very esteemed prosecutors. Uh, He was uh, a partner in a law firm which made a huge amount of money, as I said, mainly from personal injury cases. Uh, And he was very, very wealthy. He had a huge big house down there. Uh, His son, Paul, who you mentioned uh, in 2019, was driving the family's boat, uh, got into an accident and well, this was one of the more bizarre things. A, a young girl was killed in the accident. Now, Paul Murdoch was known as something of a hothead. Uh, he drank a lot. Uh, he was 19 years old at the time. Uh, could become quite violent after drinking. And there was a lot of issues around that accident. Now, when they were all taken to the hospital, his father... Um, Alex Murdoch and his grandfather arrived at the hospital. The local police were so intimidated by them that they didn't stop them from going and seeing all the people who were on the boat, all of Paul Murdoch's friends, and saying to them, don't say anything, you know, and, and basically telling them and coaching them on what to say and what not to say. Apparently they tried to get one of the kids who was a quite, uh, who didn't come from a well-off family to take responsibility for the accident, but eventually Paul Murdoch was was in the crosshairs for it. Now it, he's, he was at the time of the shootings. Uh, Alex Murdoch was being looked at for several different things. Uh, he was involved in a huge amount of embezzlement, about eight million dollars, it's believed, from his own law firm. And in 2018, the, the Murdoch housekeeper uh, tripped and fell down the stairs and was killed in in the uh, family home. Now, it was a, a strange, uh, the circumstances around her death were strange. They're being investigated separately. But at the time, um, she had two sons and one had several disabilities. Uh, Alex Murdoch encouraged the sons to, to uh, file a lawsuit to sue him. Uh, for their mother's death. And they did so with his encouragement and with him helping them. Uh, he received, the, 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 the insurance company, I should say, paid out $4.5 million. Uh, the two sons didn't get a penny of it. So basically, Alec Murdoch persuaded them to, to sue him and then kept all the money. And Claire asked Marion about the boating accident. Um, what happened after the, the boating incident? So he and his father, so this is the man who's on trial and his father are telling all the witnesses, stay quiet, stay quiet. Then something started yeah. to happen because he said that his son was being threatened, that there were bad things happening, didn't he, around this case in the lead up to this case. And at this point, the fingers are starting to point at Paul, who was in control of the boat that night. And then we have the murders of Paul and his mother. That's right. Now, what the defence is trying to do is they're, initially they were going to try to draw a line between 
the um, the killing on the boat for which um, Paul was driving at the time with the attempted murder, which turned out not to be of, of Alec Murdoch on the side of the road, and then with the murders of Paul Murdoch and his mother. So what they are trying to say initially was that, look, these murders were, were um, grudge murders. They were created against... They were, they, carried out against the family by somebody, a relative possibly of the person, the young woman who was killed on the boat. And that was one of their defence lines. But obviously when Alec Murdoch then confessed that, you know, the, the, the attempted murder of him on the side of the road never actually happened, that punched a hole in that. But it's still possible that, that um, it, you know, it seems like an open and shut case. One of the other things that happened was that the, his wife and son were shot dead with two different shotguns, a rifle and a, a shotgun. Um, at, at near where they kept their dog kennels on, they had this huge property down in South Carolina. And um, the, the, Alex Murdoch said initially that he wasn't anywhere near the scene of the crime when it happened, but then his son's cell phone was retrieved, his dead son, and um, it, it revealed that he was in fact there mm. at the kennels immediately before the shootings. He said, oh, well, you know, I couldn't trust the police. Um, you know, and uh, obviously I'm an opioid addict and I tell a lot of lies. A lot of his excuses didn't really hold up. But yet, because he is a very experienced lawyer and he took the stand, knowing, using all his experience as a prosecutor and a lawyer, um, and sort of managed to sound plausible for a lot of it. Now, the defense is also saying that, look, you never found the guns. There's no direct evidence. This is all circumstantial. And his, bro- his son testified, Buster, and said his father was heartbroken. As you say, his brother testified in a really gruesome manner about cleaning up the remains. And what I thought of when I was listening to that was, my God, the police handling this case even seem to have been so intimidated by the Murdoch family that they would allow his brother to go out and, and clean up the remains unsupervised. It, you know, the, the whole case is, is a really mm. bizarre one. But basically, the prosecution um, had six rebuttal witnesses yesterday. The jurors have asked to go to the site of the murder, to where it took place on the family property, and then closing statements will take place later today. Uh, you know, it would seem that he, he certainly, you know, the, the evidence against him does seem to be strong, the circumstantial evidence, but the defence keeps saying, and, and the defence lawyer is a very well-known lawyer down, down in South Carolina. He's saying no direct evidence. So there was a lot of ill will against his family. Uh, you didn't find the murder weapons. You didn't find any blood on his clothes, etc., etc. We'll see how this plays out, but it has the whole of America, and especially South Carolina, absolutely riveted. Grit, it's like yeah. one of those, you couldn't make it up I know, and uh, as I was watching the, the trial last night, those um, defence expert witnesses, one of them was a, a forensics expert, and he was saying that when you carried out the first shooting, you would be covered in, quite upsetting, but you would be covered in debris, let's say, from the shooting and you wouldn't be able to see to shoot the second victim. I mean, it seems very weak, doesn't it, as a defence? It's so weak. And then one of the other things the defence said was, was, well, the shooter would have to be five foot two and Alex Murdoch is six foot four. Well, you know, the prosecution pretty well um, said, well, you know, by using this, the, the standard that they use, the method of measurement, that the, the shooter could also have been seven foot six. You know, so it does yeah. seem to me a lot of the, the evidence, the, the defence evidence seems really, as you say, weak. But you, you, I think a lot of the things that are going to be factored in are, I'd say, the, the sway that this family held and the esteem they were held in. It, it would look like a pretty straightforward case. Uh, but as you know, we'll have 
to wait and see jurors, um, you know, in, in small communities that are very powerful, where they, they you know, where they, where the defence um, people are very powerful, uh, sort of, you know, can come to strange conclusions sometimes. But we'll see. Marion McKeown from today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tupperty Show, for Guaranteed Irish Month, family business Folkster is anti-fast fashion and all about clothes with quality. Here's founder Blonnet Hennessy. I think for me, it's uh, Folkster that I own is is the privilege of owning it is because of so many generations of incredibly hardworking people in our family from my great grandmother back she was my dad was Sammy she was 14 she walked through, through the fields to Port Leash to hear Charles to hear Parnell talk really? and had a real passion for a productive and incredibly uh, successful country you know and obviously this entire country is built on small businesses and hard work and I feel very fortunate to be leading one now um, in this country that I do love so uh, through my family I think on both sides I've been very lucky to experience and witness people being really good grafters but enjoying it and doing it for the love of what they do and for the benefit and the service of, of people. So, so that, I'm intrigued by that because I only mentioned that it's, it's guaranteed Irish month uh, for the month of, of March. And here you are in the course of, of uh, you know, 90 second answer. You've mentioned Ireland and love of Ireland a few times. <laughs> this is most unusual and, and very impressive. So we, we'll talk about that in a moment. But if we go down another generation, I suppose, from your great grandmother, uh, to your grand is it is it grandmother and the black and tans that, that's, that was that, the same same lady so yeah woman? so she, was, she saw a lot of action she didn't she did and you know I think that that's the thing with her she was very um, proud of her country and she had a very tough time in rural Ireland as as most people of mm. that generation did growing up in Tipperary and you know. She had a, a, a well-known safe house at the time and uh, obviously was targeted by the Black and Tans, survived. And all the while being a widow with four children and farming um, on, uh, yeah, besides Bogland, you know. So, yeah. I mean, this is a real uh, woman of perseverance and resilience and a huge inspiration to all of our family. And on both sides, on my mother's side too, you know, her great-grandmother, um, or her grandmother lost her husband very young, raised three children down in Kilkenny. Um, and just against all odds, and I think so many families in Ireland have that, those stories in mm. our heritage and you know and with that I think the understanding that we are naturally and innately a hard working um, yeah. group of people our country I Graft, should say grafters it's, it's in us it's yeah. in us you know so and I think for me I see that always in my team. We have over 60 employees now and you just see it. It's for the love. It's it's for the love of, of the work and for the, um, I suppose we're, we're always trying to do our best and see how much we can achieve. And mm-hmm. I think for her, that was her, from all my my family on both sides, it seems to be a kind of recurrent theme that they just wanted to see how good they could do it, you know, and to push themselves to see how good and with the support of their communities and to survive and to thrive, you know, it's all any of us can really, I suppose, hope for. Let's go a bit more local now to your own experience. And, and you'll have to begin by describing to certain different generations what, what the top hat suite is. Oh. <laughs> because I, I, I'm, a, I'm a sweet connoisseur, especially the old Tempe bags, but I think yeah. I have a few years on you. So I might have to go back a few years to understand what it is. So the top hat is what? Oh, so I, now if you grow up in the 80s, you'll know a top hat. Oh, so yeah, uh, uh, like we ha- used to uh, you get your comic books and they used to have the yeah. little recipes in and everything. And of course, I thought it was totally 
connoisseur and this is like melted chocolate over marshmallow oh, in a yeah. bun you know bun case with a smarty on top yes. but I figured yeah. I could <laughs> I figured I could corner the market on this one I was about six or seven at the end of our lane in Johnstown I started a little stall selling them to the kids trying to catch them before they went to the sweet shop you know yeah. um, and then I realised you know I couldn't compete with you know the buying power of the growing grocery beside us so they very kindly offered to wholesale them <laughs> I mean they should have maybe done a bit of due diligence because I don't even know if I was washing my hands making these or anything it was the 80s no one washed it was the hands. 80s yeah, yeah. you know and that's why we're all fit and strong now I yeah know. exactly loads uh, of bacteria yeah yeah, yeah loads of uh, I was trying to do the community service actually um, <laughs> but so I, that was the first kind of love and uh, yeah. I had for a bit of retail and from there it just never left me in anything that I did it was always I suppose about finding something unique you know if, yes. as silly as that sounds but it was I just had it was just in me so Ryan asked Blonnet about the birth of her brand Folkster so you set up a shop in Kilkenny, Kilkenny yeah in an old bank selling yeah. off the clothes that you'd kind of accumulated over mm-hmm. years as a result of being a fashion stylist, stylist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so on um, and you just hit that wave. Now, yes. that's not luck. That's that's work. I always kind of, I think it's, I, I don't like when people say it's just like a lucky you didn't. You, you earn your luck a lot most of the time. Luck is winning the lotto, you know. Yeah. Uh, but working your your your, your derriere off uh, is what it is. Uh, what brought, started bringing people into the shop? What, like, was, it, was it this, the, the anti-fast fashion thing? Was it just good taste? I mean, how did it, take fire I think the thing is that we were so lucky to be able to communicate directly with the customer this is one of the first times that you could really reach to customers all over the country you know um, and so we could really talk to them and chat with them and see what would fit them and try things on for them and send them photos and this so we were really at the start of that we were very fortunate in that way um, but also my focus was always to make the customer feel really uh, cared for mm-hmm. and that was something that you know it was old school you know through my family everyone has been involved in merch like selling you know at some point and it yeah. was always about customer care and service and so it was to be really the butler to our customer and make them feel really uh, uh, cared for and so that's something that is still at the forefront of Folkster and I think it just really caught people because they wanted to know more about what to wear and maybe they just weren't sure and they kind of had an idea where they wanted to go so it was for us to, to learn to guide them. So it wasn't just if it's not on the shelf you don't have it. Yeah, you no. know like, <laughs> you don't have it, it's not, like I have changing rooms over there they're manky so it was a whole approach yeah. and in you come and yes. what can we do and where are you going go to a yeah. wedding oh sure we can fix you up there we've got something nice here it's yes. like a, well, the equivalent for me is a bookshop where people actually read books love, and I care I love bookshops you know the score yes. yeah, you've got a great one there in, in, in Kilkenny yes absolutely the book centre yeah, and there's a couple of bookshops but mm-hmm. uh, they're just great cans, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly and they're run by people who care and I think yeah, that a, a shop that's run by people who care and that's why so, so many awful um, you know, global shops you know, with just the name over the door. And uh, they're, they're nice people working, of course, but yes. there's the love, the love, the soul. It's like family-run hotels in Ireland. The, the soul, you can't buy that. But you can ignite the love for retail and service in anyone if you lead them well, in the right way. Well, that's good leadership. Absolutely, and yeah. And I think that's the thing. It's to make a big brand feel like a small boutique. And that's that's the whole vibe that we're going for. Is like, you know, we want to grow as a brand. Obviously, we're still a business, but we never want to lose that feeling of coming in. And I'll know your name if you come in the next time. Do you know? Um, it's really important to us. Tell me the name, the, which of your family are involved in your business now. Oh, uh, so 
Yes, my, my dad does our deliveries now. My mom is our vintage bar. My sister, Roshin, uh, is our head of bridal. She actually came up with the concept. My brother, Owen, does our photography. My brother, Aaron, does our videography. My husband, Connor, does our graphics and illustration. My sister-in-law, Luce, is a qualified warehouse engineer, runs our warehouse. Right. My brother-in-law, Matthew, is a qualified developer and he runs our, our website. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. But like, yeah. I've cousin, oh, my cousin, Hugh, is our master craftsman builder. He, he builds all our shops. You're basically the, the, the rag trade Kennedys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hennessy from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, Britain's former health minister Matt Hancock and those leaked WhatsApp messages. The former British health secretary Matt Hancock has disputed claims he failed to follow expert advice on COVID tests for people going into care homes at the start of the pandemic. WhatsApp messages leaked to the Daily Telegraph newspapers suggest Mr Hancock was told in April 2020 that there should be testing of all going into care homes. The messages were passed to the Telegraph by the journal journalist Isabel Oakshot, who was given copies of those texts while helping Matt Hancock write his book, Pandemic Diaries. To take a closer look at this, I'm joined on the line by the political editor with the Financial Times, George Parker. Good morning, George. Morning. So The Telegraph has more than 100,000 WhatsApp messages sent between Matt Hancock, ministers and officials. And amongst those messages, there were the exchanges that allege, as Matt Hancock, as I was saying there, that Matt Hancock rejected this advice to give COVID tests to all residents who were going into English care homes. That's the big line from this today. But he rejects this. Yes, I mean, the way the government handled the early stages of the COVID pandemic, and in particular, whether they put a protective ring around care homes, which is the phrase used by Matt Hancock, is probably the most um, serious allegation being levelled against the government, that they let down people in those care homes and caused or helped contribute to many thousands of deaths in care homes. And that's why this uh, expose in the Daily Telegraph running to seven pages is so potentially explosive. Um, it's important to say, of course, that Matt Hancock is... Uh, calling these WhatsApp messages stolen and um, saying that they've been doctored to give a distorted impression of what was decided. But nevertheless, it's um, it's a damaging moment for Matt Hancock and for the government more generally. Well, I know he's he's making those claims, but it is very interesting, the backstory around how these ended up in the paper, isn't it? Well, someone was just making the point on Twitter that WhatsApp messages are encrypted from end to end and are very secret, unless you happen to hand over 100,000 of them to a journalist, in this case, Isabel Oakeshott, um, who was helping Matt Hancock write a book called The Pandemic Diaries. And now Isabel Oakeshott's decided that it's in the public interest that all of those 100,000 messages that Matt Hancock gave her should be put into the public domain. So Matt Hancock is understandably furious. Um, Isabel Oakeshott saying she acted in the best interests of um, the public's understanding of the COVID pandemic. But certainly the story about how this came into the public domain is uh, it's causing a lot of interest at Westminster as well. Yeah. And she has written a long piece today, hasn't she, justifying why she's made this decision, but also promising that there's more to come. Yes, I mean, I'm sure that um, Matt Hancock will be embracing himself for more. It's interesting that, you know, some more of this didn't come out in the book that uh, she helped Matt Hancock write, although, of course, Matt Hancock would have had a sort of um, a controlling hand on and what actually appeared in print at the end of it. But, yeah, I mean, more allegations to come. And this is really a, pre- a pre-taste of um, what we're going to see playing out over here over the next year or so, because we're soon going to get the start of the public inquiry into COVID, which will rake over in extensive detail all of the mistakes the government made in the first months and weeks of the pandemic. Um, and of course, that will be taking place in an election year over here. So that's that's a problem for the government. 
And at the heart of this really is the fact that the government failed to prepare for the pandemic. They could see it coming across from China, but by by the time it hit the UK in March, they just didn't have the testing capacity, anywhere near the testing capacity to carry out tests of people going into care homes, for example. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why Matt Hancock says they didn't test people going into care homes, they just couldn't do it. But he had made a commitment, hadn't he, to do 100,000 community tests every day. And the implication from these messages is that he didn't want testing of people going into care homes to distract from that promise, from keeping that promise. Yeah, he thought it was an unnecessary distraction from this this target of going to 100,000 tests. But by the time the government actually got to the target of 100,000 tests a day, the pandemic was already in full swing. Um, The questions were being asked why they didn't build up the testing capacity way before the pandemic hit. And that's the the problem. And that's why so many people in the first wave of COVID died in care homes, because they just didn't have the capacity to, to test people. So what more are we expecting uh, from this? Because doesn't Matt Hancock say that the journalist involved, Isabel Oakeshott, is in breach of a non-disclosure agreement? Well, he's, he's, not, he's, he's sort of threatening all sorts of things about the, to the, at the Telegraph and Isabel Oakeshott so he's, you know, he's suggesting he's consulting lawyers and, and so forth. Um, I mean, that's certainly going to be an interesting subplot and... Uh, you know, that this sort of legal, this legal battle and the claim that Isabel Oakeshott, who was very sceptical about COVID lockdowns in the first place, is giving a partial impression to the Daily Telegraph of the messages that were being exchanged. But I think, you know, there will be embarrassing um, episodes to come. I mean, there's, there's a lot of detail, as you can imagine, in 100,000 WhatsApp messages sent in the middle of a health emergency. One of the ones the Telegraph has here is that the health department organised a courier to go and pick up a COVID test for the son of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who at the time was a cabinet minister. You know, it sounds like special treatment if you're family members of a cabinet minister. So all that sort of thing won't look particularly great. And you can imagine the Daily Telegraph, which, if you recall, was the paper that did the expenses scandal at Westminster all those years ago, over many, many months. I suspect they'll be milking this for all it's worth over the, the days to come. George Parker from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, the cost of electricity and gas and a crisis in energy poverty. Mother of two and family carer Tracy Carroll from Kells and County Meath spoke about the impact on their lives. So I'm full-time carer for my daughter Willow. Um, Willow just turned six in December, so she has complex medical needs, a profound disability and life-limiting condition. So her care is really 24-7 around the clock. Um, I also have a son, Noah, who will be nine in April, um, recently diagnosed with ADHD. So he also has additional needs and in need of additional supports. Family carers are means tested on a carer's allowance. So we don't get the full carers. We get half rate. We also don't um, receive the fuel grant either. So we're, we're, we're not... Uh, receiving any supports towards the extra expense of heating our home or running electricity, which obviously at the moment is a huge concern for many, many family carers. Caring for someone with a disability is significantly more um, of a burden financially on a weekly basis. So you obviously are heating your home on a 24-7 basis and you're running electricity constantly. Um, Willow has a suction pump which has to be charged fully um you know other families would have other equipment that needs to be looked after specialized bedding all these little things that aren't taken into consideration when you're just running a you know a typical household 
uh, for example, Willow hasn't been well since Friday, so I've actually had the stove lit 24-7, just topping it up, topping it up, topping up. This morning I went out, you know, to fill the logbook. I was like, God, I'm going to have to get another load. Every small thing is an extra expenditure, and yet we have not seen any real supports. We, we've been granted the €200, Euro, um, the same as everybody else. There's another additional €200 Euro coming to carers, but if you don't get carers allowance because of means testing, you won't receive that benefit. If you're getting up in the morning and wondering, do I heat my home or do I feed myself because of this financial burden that's been left on carers, it's going to create a bigger problem. People are going to fall into ill health. You know, the, the, the pressures emotionally, mentally, and people are left, you know, really in, in, in a severe crisis point where they're already been in crisis. Tracy Carroll speaking to Sally Ann Barrett. Then Mary Wilson spoke to Nesson Vaughan from St Vincent de Paul. Nesson, how many stories like Tracy's would you hear on an almost daily basis now? I know you were out visiting families in need last night. Yeah. <clears throat> Good morning, Mary. Yes, indeed, uh, very many uh, families uh, like, like Mary, children with additional needs are having additional supports and which results in extra expenditure on that household. So they're experiencing acute difficulties at the moment. We're hearing that almost on the, we are hearing it actually on a, on a daily basis. Mm. And I suppose these are families that, because as, as Tracy was explaining, she's means tested, she gets half the care rate, she doesn't get a fuel grant, but she is faced with those rising electricity bills which are more acute for her because of the needs of, yes. of her daughter. Um, but families perhaps like Tracy, would not have been phoning you a year or two years ago, but they are now coming to you for help, are they? Yes, indeed. We, we, we are, as you mentioned earlier, at the, the intro, Mary, the, the number of calls have increased by 20% overall for last year, um, but many now are coming to us uh, for the first time. Some people who previously donated to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, maybe people indeed who are in work and sometimes feel, oh, we don't help people in work, but of course we do people perhaps who are on the working uh, family payment and by definition that means they're on low pay but of course they don't qualify for the fuel allowance for example which we advocate so more and more people who are coming to us for the first time and who are very distressed and whose health is suffering greatly. Nesson Vaughan from St Vincent de Paul on Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. And that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time.